Welcome back to another episode of the Hall of Sports podcast and we're here for another episode of the Rugby Room and I'm joined today by Rachel Burford and I'm really excited to have you on the show today Rachel, how are you doing today? I'm very well thank you, thanks for inviting me on, um, yeah I'm looking forward to it, that was quite snazzy that intro. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I've, been, I've been working on it for a couple of weeks so uh, yeah it's it's nice that's all kind of come together but um yeah, I guess where I want to start is just some of the work that you've been doing recently as well. Like, I know a lot of people know you for kind of playing for Harlequins and for, for England and stuff like that, but I've been following what you've been doing with the Girls Rugby Club recently, and it's been it's been really good. How When did this kind of idea come about, and when did you kind of find this, um, this kind of um, venture that you're on? Well, it kind of all started when we were first made professional players and then, you know, contracts were never certain. So it was almost like, well, I need to set something else up. And what am I passionate about? What do I care about? Um, and that's when I first launched the Burford Academy, which was very much around, you know, developing girls on the pitch and off the pitch, running camps with them. Um, but then recognising I had so many ideas, but I couldn't, couldn't ever take it anywhere because I was all on my own and I was running things myself so then during the first lockdown and for all the horrible things that have happened for people during lockdown I know that there are some good that have come out of it and one of them for me was I partnered with a company called Mace Sport and we just got talking sharing ideas and then that's when we founded the the relaunch really of of the girls rugby club and the whole idea behind it is we want to be this platform which is bringing opportunities, accessibility, sharing knowledge, uh, you know, talking about the things that aren't being talked about, um, as well as, you know, providing opportunities to develop them as players as well. So running all our face-to-face -face camps. But as we've learned in this COVID world, you can do so much over um, a screen now where we can actually, we can capture more people from around the world in different areas and and really get, you know, some of the messages out there that we want to. Yeah, it's a really interesting one because when I was reading about it, it's, it's something that is kind of uh, one of the problems I've seen with kind of girls rugby because I have a lot of I have a couple of kind of nieces and cousins and where they would get involved in rugby at a really young age until the point of where I think tackling came in and then you started to see some of the girls kind of wean out and not be part of kind of their local clubs and it's it's one thing that what I found is really interesting is kind of get, keeping that interest in a lot of girls to continue playing the sport because as you see in the majority of clubs i know in in ireland anyway you do see kind of there's not as many like girls teams at different age groups and it leads to a lot of kind of young kids not actually continuing playing yeah and and that is exactly where it kind of all started from so at the time i was a community rugby coach for the rfu and noticing that girls between kind of 11 and 12 and younger were kind of they felt really isolated you know it wasn't for everybody like some people like i um grew up playing in an all-boys team, felt very part of it and, you know, had a very good, positive experience. But there's some girls out there that just don't. And so created what we did we first, when I was with the RFU, we created this day where we just said, right, if you're age seven all the way up to 18 and you play rugby in the county, you can come along to this day. It's for girls only. And then all of a sudden you've got girls walking around going, oh, 
this is what this is what's to come. Oh, and now I've got a couple of friends that I know from the club down the road in case I need to move clubs. They're a bit familiar with a different clubhouse. So trying to break help break down those barriers because it certainly is an area where a when contact comes in, girls go. Do you know what? I'm not sure I want to be tackling boys. Um, some girls are absolutely fine with it, and there's some that's not. So what are we catering for that? And and the girls' rugby club is very much we want to have this. We want to support pathways from the age of literally from seven all the way up to 18. And, and now there's some great initiatives already out there and we're not reinventing any wheels. It's just picking, you know, where's the right area? Where are we seeing drop off? Where did young girls need support? Right, okay, that's where the Girls Rugby Club can come in and put in an infrastructure or at least start to help build a pathway so they can really see it uh, and then go, do you know what? I want to be a part of this because I can see the future in it. Yeah, because I've noticed from my own local club, because I would have helped out coaching there at different kind of kids' age levels, and you see early on that there's a good mix between the boys and the girls, but then as you see some of, there might be a couple of girls that want to continue on playing, but then once their friends start to, to go, that's when you start to see kind of that yeah. that drop off, and it's, it's unfortunate because there's some of them that I've seen kind of come through over the last couple of years that have been really, really good, and it's it's really unfortunate to kind of lose some of them but I've also seen one of the kind of big impacts is actually some of the I wouldn't say the ideas but kind of what the viewpoint of some of the parents when you see them kind of mixing when they're at that age group when they are tackling I've seen like you hear like comments on the sidelines and stuff and I think that's one of the for me I think that's one of the barriers to get over that it's fine for a lot of the girls to continue playing even past when they're finished with touch rugby at, at the beginning. Yeah, of course. There, there's so many kind of layers to it, isn't there? And and definitely like player and coach and parent education is massive on that. I think, you know, I come from a background where my mum and my dad and my sister played. So there was at no point they were going, oh, no, I'm not sure about this. And and so we just need to, again, it's supporting and helping, you know, the parents through the journey as well. And you know, there is plenty of information out there, but it's kind of scattered. And, and that's kind of another element that we want to bring as much knowledge and information to one kind of platform so that if there are concerns or issues, then they can reach out to, to the Girls Rugby Club and have those conversations openly. Yeah, absolutely. So if you were saying kind of over the next few years, what would be kind of the main goal of girls rugby club like would it be to get some of these young girls put into maybe a local team that there are teams for girls or is it just to try and get whether it's the community to be more aware of kind of breaking down these barriers or if, is there a different kind of long-term goal that you would have in mind Oh, we've got so many goals. Um, I think just kind of short term, what we're doing now is we just really want to build like a database and find out what's needed. And um, that's part of one of our, we're going to have free campaigns throughout the year. Um, our first campaign is a player welfare one where we're diving into, you know, women's needs and girls' needs in the area. And also, you know, looking into concussion and, and just getting some feedback because then once we collate all that information, we can go, right, where what is really needed here? Um, you know, obvious success for us is getting back out there, coaching on our half-term camps, growing that. But the online database, just understanding where some issues are and how we can bring solutions to that. So, you know, we've got big plans and big ideas, but we first need to go out there and find out what is really needed and, and really understand them because what might be a problem in my area in Kent won't be the same problem in Surrey. So we just need to make sure that we're gathering enough information to, to understand and then be able to go out and action. 
Yeah, absolutely. I guess one of the points that you mentioned there, and it's it's been a big kind of turning point, I think, the pro- probably the past six or seven years in relation to concussions. Um, I know from my own coaching is that it's been a big, it's been a, a big emphasis on kind of making sure that everybody understands kind of what you need to be able to do, the protocols, and then also that the players and, again, kind of the parents understand kind of the importance that we need to deal with concussions because we've seen it even in, you look at the even the Six Nations recently, I know that there was a couple of the Irish players that got it and then there was there was news about, I think it was Jonathan Sexton's concussion that came out that it wasn't completely accurate about what exactly happened to him. It, do you think it's dangerous, again, to be speculating about players' concussions if they're not actually the ones that are involved, like the independent doctor or the player himself? Yeah, I think, you know, it's easy to to make a judgment or to think, you know, I know about this. But I think that the importance is, like, we are very much on a, a player welfare agenda. And I think that's, you know, any union you talk to, whether that's World Rugby, whether that's Girls Rugby Club, everybody cares about the players and concussions, a hugely hot topic at the moment. Um, and it's just something that I think we need to keep educating on. We need to really understand. I mean, we're still learning and studying, you know, brains and and trying to understand the differences between it and how to recover from concussion. You know, every single player, there's no one shape fits all. Everybody will will be recovering from it different, or suffer from it differently, or be diagnosed in a completely different way. So it's you can't just go, oh well, my mate did that, so this means this type thing. And I think you saw that with Johnny. You know, everybody kind of had a speculation and. You know, as soon as one word gets twisted, then all of a sudden there's a new story out. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it's interesting because we're obviously looking more into how concussion affects females because it affects them differently, um, and especially during around menstrual cycle time as well. So we're trying to understand more from a female body perspective what that then means because that could mean different protocols. It could mean you know longer recovery or it could mean less recovery. We don't know, but I guess you know. It's going to be, I don't think we're ever going to get to a point where this is exactly the model and this is what fits because you're always going to be learning and researching and, and new developments are going to happen. And I think as long as we keep learning and keep re, you know, uh, sharing that knowledge and resource of what we find behind concussion, that's the only way we can be totally transparent about, you know, the risks that it, that are involved. And you can see you know, within rugby, they're massively trying to trying to sort out the tackle area. And um, yeah. as we saw at the weekend with all the red cards yeah. in the premiership. Um, but, yeah, it, it's something that is hot topic. And But to be honest, I don't think it will ever won't be a hot topic. Yeah, I think it's it's completely true. We've It kind of, it kind of came from everything that was happening in the NFL was the kind of the first kind of big point where we're seeing – former players kind of commit suicide because of some of the effects to do with their brain injuries and things like that and one of the points that is is actually really important is like you said that there could be different effects whether it's male or female based on again it can be based on the type of concussion you get how many you've gotten as well because we've we've seen that in different sports players that get more than one it, it comes to a time when they really do need to stop playing because it can be really, really dangerous for maybe not their health right now, but long-term. Okay, we, yeah. we, that's, I think that's the biggest thing that I know a lot of doctors are trying to figure out really what are the main impacts of 
someone getting multiple concussions long-term. And we've known from the NFL, which it's probably the closest to do with rugby, as I know a lot of players that have gone in there have said it's like going through 50 car crashes every single Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> so but with, with, with rugby, like you said, they are trying to make it safer in terms of trying to help with the tackle area, but obviously there's a big adjustment there. What do you think? What do you think that World Rugby are trying to do now to kind of get the right balance between safety, but also not completely stripping back the game? Because I know there's been a lot of people that have complained, uh, probably since the last couple of weeks. We've seen it in the Six Nations, two red cards that have that have helped Wales come in and win their first two games. I'd say there's probably a lot of bets on um, someone on the England team yeah. being around this this weekend as well but look it i think as a as a rugby fan you have to want the players to be able to play as long as possible and the only way to do that is to protect them and i think the tackle area is the first one i think where people get a little bit kind of uneasy about it is when there's the inconsistency in how it's dealt with by the officiator And that's a really hard place to be because what one referee might determine as, you know, high and reckless and, you know, no mitigating factors might be different for another one. And and that's where players sit. They find it hard because they're like, well, wait a minute, that happened to me last week and there was no red card. And so I think it's really difficult one because, you know, like I said at the start, player welfare is at the top of the agenda. So that's where they've got to look at first. And they still want to protect the integrity of the game. I mean, we all want 15 v 15 on a pitch the whole time. But how do we help change behaviour or how do we kind of enforce that or accelerate it quite quickly without there being a quite big sanction? Um, It's a really tough one. But if you go by the letter of the law, and maybe that's where, you know, around the high tackle um framework what referees have to work from they are often left with no choice but to do what they have to do and and as much as and look I I believe I could say that no player turns up to a match and go I'm going to take someone's head off today to try and concuss them or to try and hurt them like I just don't think that there's even in the most competitive people they're like I want to beat someone in terms of like be quicker to the breakdown to them you know line speed all of that but I don't see anybody setting a goal, I'm going to hurt someone today or I'm going to intentionally do this or foul play. Um, You've obviously got some flankers that will borderline the foul play area (laughs) and toy with that a little bit. But so I think like players' intentions aren't aren't ill. And I think, you know, we just need to continue to work together. I think World Rugby working with players to understand, you know, that environment, whether that's training, playing, being in the heat at the moment, the circumstances, to really talk it through with the people who are making the decisions around it. Um, it's really, really important because you can't have somebody making a decision on the game if they're nowhere near the game, if they're so far removed from playing it and being in a training environment. Um, so I, I think, you know, we're, we're on the a right path, but there's always, with things like this, especially, you know, the have such a big impact can have such a big impact um there's always going to be teaming problems there's always going to be things to fix up and as long as you know world rugby is open to recognizing oh this actually isn't working or we need to reevaluate this let's go back to the players let's get some voice from them let's understand it a little bit more get some other experts in which they are doing but as long as we keep doing that then i think we'll find the right balance eventually yeah, do you, in your own kind of experience, have you seen that some of the 
kind of unions have actually been talking to the players to try and get the best way to kind of figure out how to deal with with some of these because like we said in other sports we've seen i think most notably you could probably look at football where the people making a lot of the decisions in terms of like rule changes aren't really close to the game but i i feel like within rugby we kind of have a better balance when it comes to that um do is there a lot of interaction with kind of the players even when you kind of see it for yourself or your games yeah I, I do now I think in the last sort of two years it's had a huge shift um it was last year in Paris just before we all went into lockdown um there were coaches invited to have a conversation with world rugby about these kind of things and I think as long as that um open communication lines continue then we'll find the right solution um because i think like i said if, it, if it's just one group of people making a decision then that's where you get multiple amount of problems um and i think you know my experience players are now so much more involved the international players have you know they are pretty much on every single board within world rugby there's regular meets now there's um small working groups like like I mentioned there on the high tackle framework, there's a group of players that are providing feedback who are living it and in it, have been affected by it. And that's so valuable for the people who are trying to make the, you know, we've got to remember this is all good intentions to, to support player welfare. So using all this information to give to those people who are trying to make the game safer for everybody and to keep as many people playing for the game for as long as they want to. Uh, some might be trying to play for longer than they should but I think you know as long as we keep those lines of communications open then we will hopefully get to a place where you know it, it's the right decision of what's happening on the pitch yeah and that's a that's a big thing that I've always liked the fact that if you can get both the players involved with kind of the people that are making a lot of these decisions you kind of come up with better rules and better ways to dealing with things because i think over the past three or four years we've seen a big shift in kind of especially the player welfare in terms of some of the rules that have come in you mentioned kind of the high tackles we saw kind of the big adjustment that had to be done at the recent rugby world cup where we saw a lot of red cards because players weren't too sure but i think we're starting to see a little bit better but i think the the one problem we're always going to have is we've mentioned that nobody comes out to try and hurt a player injure a player but it's it's kind of millimeters that can change it you look at the red card that happened against scotland what was it two weeks ago now and it's one of those that it's kind of like a very quick play and it's like i said it's probably centimeters away from not being foul play to actually being foul play and it's it's a difficult one have you have you noticed kind of a change in any of the mindset in terms of some of the games that you've been involved in recently with some of these changes that people that players are a little bit more aware of we, even you look at the tackle area or a dangerous play or is it that players will still go out the same way and just hope that they don't get that they don't hit the kind of wrong area or the timing isn't bad like we've seen with peter O'Mahony in the wales and ireland game and, that, and we saw with ferguson as well in the scotland and wales game yeah, I think players' mentality is to be competitive, no matter what what rules are in front of them. They're always going to try and push the limit. But I think you know, 
certainly in the in our team we, we want to tackle low we don't want to put ourselves at risk of of getting you know hitting a high tackle or having head-on-head contact uh, we recently had um, a head-on-head contact um harlequins versus exeter a couple of weeks ago and our players now serving a four year four year she's only young so she'll be all right but yeah a four-week ban but you know you know, I think it's quite harsh. It's, you know, you just said it there. Um, you know, no players going out there to to hurt anybody. They already get sent off the pitch. They've already, you know, served a, a, a punishment then. And then to have another four weeks of punishment, I just think maybe that's an area where they can maybe work a little bit better with the players on because, you know, these are people's livelihoods. It's their dreams. It's and get all player safety, but then what's happening in those four weeks to make sure that, you know, that split second that you're talking about, that millimetre never happens again? You know, it's very hard. It's very fine margins to go, oh, do you know what? If we give them four weeks, then they'll learn their lesson and they won't do it. And then next week someone slides up or someone slips and it's head on head again. You know, there are scenarios that probably are the areas where there needs to be diving more into and understanding those and being very clear about what's kind of, you know, uh what's the word uh oh my mind's gone blank oh come but it'll come to me in a minute yeah. like yeah uh, i can't, I can't, I can't think of the <laughs> no but it it's true because you kind of look at it was it's one of the interesting ones where rugby go with the the week's ban instead of certain games because you look at certain players like i go back to Peter O'Mahony, who got red card and he'll miss a couple of weeks now. And he misses international games for, for Ireland while for the same for the same one, you get somebody missing four or five weeks for their club while there could be a week or two where their club doesn't play and realistically they only miss two or three games. I feel like if if they're gonna have kind of the same type of suspensions, do you think it'd be better that they take it as maybe a game by game basis rather than the weeks because like you said if there's what is somebody going to learn if there's like a split second and there's a head-to-head contact it's completely accidental but it happens and they get four weeks compared to you see other dangerous play where it's pretty much the same suspension and the kind of as we mentioned the mitigating factors are completely different yeah and you have also you sometimes get somebody who's been completely reckless and they get the same for somebody that's had a slip or, you know, a millisecond. It's a difficult one because I think we've experienced it again with one of our players got, um, she also didn't made a high tackle and got a four week, a four match ban. But then yeah. we had COVID. Then we had, so she literally it kept getting put back and put back. Then we had like another game cancelled because of weather. And so whether it's like game by game, that then allows them to re-enter back into the game quickly as opposed to weeks. Or they, There was a time where they were talking about, you know, creating courses or trying to help with education around it, But which is fine. If you've got somebody who's, you know, swinging arms and, you know, leading with their shoulder time and time and time again, then A, they won't be playing because they'll be constantly banned. But like, maybe they're the people that... Um, would need a bit more further education or support. But it's really hard when those rugby accidents happen to go, well, it's not really his fault and it's not his fault. Someone's still got to go because there's been head on head. Yeah. And and we we always look at, 
we always look at the person who's being tackled. Well, what do players do when they go into contact? They drop their body height and literally lead with their head. So, like, does some of the responsibility need to also be on the ball carrier and not just on the tackler? Yeah, it's it's a big thing. Like, uh, though, I would always look at, for example, when you look at French rugby with Matthew Bastero when he would run with the ball, he would always kind of go down when he's going into contact. And now if somebody now hits him in the head because he's gone down, you're probably the tackler is getting sent off. But even though it could be the fault of both players where, okay, maybe the tackler needs to get lower, but also that the ball carrier needs to not go down, going in kind of head first as well. It's a, it's a difficult one. I guess like that's where you kind of need someone when they're putting out these suspensions that it's not just if you get sent off, this is your suspension. They should be looking at the context to kind of each each foul or each red mm-hmm. card because some are completely different. Even look at, I go back to kind of the two Six Nations ones and F- Ferguson for Scotland, it was literally a one second change of body position that got yeah. him sent off. Well, I think with Peter O'Mahony, he probably had a little bit more time to adjust what he was going to do. So you can see the differences there where one person probably deserves to get maybe a longer suspension than the other, even if they were both mistakes. It's it's a yeah. really tr- it's a really tricky one. Um, one of the other points I wanted to go to is because you were mentioned how one of the players on on your team got kind of got a red card, and then there was COVID and things got cancelled. I guess one of the one of the impacts, I guess, was the holiday of the Six Nations for the under twenties and for the women's. I know last season, if it was last season, they they technically got <laughs> got cancelled, and then. We heard pretty early on, I think it was just before the men's Six Nations was about to start, that the under-20s and the women's got cancelled again, but now it's been pushed back to, to April. Are you happy, first of all, the fact that it's now on, it's been pushed back? And I guess the second question is, there's been a lot of debate on whether it should be at a different time than the men's Six Nations. Would you be for that, or, or do you like it when kind of both competitions are on at the same time? Uh, I think, yeah, I do love it when they're both on at the same time. But I think, firstly, the decision to move it was 100% the right one for the integrity of the the tournament. Because if you really look into it, which teams are, A, connected and training together, and, and then, B, who who's actually playing rugby? Now, the only league that's really up and running is the Allianz Premier 15. So if you're Irish, Scottish, Welsh and you're playing in the Allianz, then you're getting some rugby. But the majority of them aren't. Same with Italy. Um, the um, season got cancelled as well. France only had a few games as well, but at least they were actually training together at times. So to go into what is known as, you know, the second biggest tournament outside of the Rugby World Cup, with only one team really prepared. And, you know, let's be fair, they're probably the strongest team anyway. So they could have probably done with, you know, they could have done without all the preparation and still gone and performed pretty well. But so for those teams, it, it was really important that it was moved to allow them to prepare properly, to get some actual rugby games under their belt and played before going into that tournament, which means a lot for a lot of players. Um, also with the qualifiers coming up and, well, qualifiers happening, um, it, 
it was the right decision to do just for the integrity of the sport and and what it does do it just opens up a huge opportunity now to to actually test this market where there's been conversations about moving that window to have an own window and I'm all for it because as much as I love having it all on at the same time it really does open up so many different opportunities for the for the Six Nations and for the women's game generally. You know, having it around April, May time, different climate, you're not competing with men's fans, you're not competing with broadcasters, venues, sponsorship, so you don't have to share the resource. It can be all put into one, one event. Um, so there's so many different, um, to be honest, I can't see any cons about running it slightly differently, especially from an English perspective and, and potentially... Uh, and Wales, Ireland and Scotland, Italy and France for for this side of the world, you know, for us to go from we can play all our domestic rugby then into our international um, regional window, that's perfect. Instead of it being kind of in between, then it disrupts the domestic league and also it, it allows so much more rugby to be played, internationals to get better, have lots of game time under their belt and then go straight into that tournament. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because I just know from watching the Six Nations is knowing before when there was the under twenties, which I know we used to get on, I think it was usually Friday nights that, that would usually that would happen. Then you get kind of the games on Saturday and Sunday for the men's. And if I knew for Ireland if we were playing on a Sunday, I think the women's game was usually on the Saturday and and vice versa. And it, it was one of those, I think, for a lot of people, especially for being able to actually access it i know the the tv channels that we get the men's here is you have to go online in order to watch the women's game instead of it just being on tv but now with it being at a different time it's more likely to see that the game will be on and be something for people to watch and like we mentioned at the start it it kind of increases the intra the interest in young girls to go and and to play because they get to see this big competition, which before may not always be on TV at a time that yeah. people are watching, and that and it's re- it's really important. I know I can't remember what what year it was. it was recent enough where I know the Irish team were doing pretty well, and they played at I think it was Donnybrook Stadium, and they had a pretty good crowd there, and it looked at that point where we were starting to see kind of more interest in it, and then it slowly kind of faded as. I guess it was when the times that they were putting the games on kind of clashed with maybe watching something else. And it's one of those that I think if it is by itself, look, like you said, it's a really good case study this year to know Mm -hmm. kind of what is the interest there? Can we improve it? And I actually didn't even think of the fact that you get to play your club rugby, then go straight into that kind of international regional window, which it works. I think it worked really well and probably is very beneficial for the players. Yeah, absolutely. And it gives them, you know, a real set. This is what I'm doing. Cause you know, I haven't been there where you've got six nations in between a domestic competition and it'd be the same for the men at the moment, but you're in, you're out, you're going off to do some camps, then you're back in with club. You've got two sets of different calls and moves and systems and patterns. And, you know, always if it, it still happens today where England girls will be like calling stuff. That's the England calls, not the Carlequins call. And you're like, you mean this, right? And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, that's a really nice thing. But, but I also think, you know, watching all six nations, all men's, all under twenties, all women's in one weekend, it's, it's hard going. Yeah. And and you know what? Something we'll give and, and then all of a sudden we lose an audience that would potentially be interested. Um 
something that they failed in the past is putting the same, and this will come down to broadcast opportunities, putting fixtures on at the same time. So I couldn't watch versus Ireland whilst England were playing Italy because they're on at the exact same time. Um, So that, again, gives that window of not having to compete with so many different times time to put it on. It gives them a whole blank canvas to go, right, what is really going to work for the women's game? What's the right times? What's the right venues? This is a golden opportunity where we've been forced into it. Let's take it and make the most of it. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. It's it's about getting people kind of aware of it and then actually getting to watch because like this time around, look, with, with COVID, I don't I don't know what it'll be be like in the UK now and in Ireland. We're pretty much gonna be in lockdown till pretty much the end of April. So it's a perfect oh, opportunity. Crowds can come back by April. So we could see some of the six nations with people in watching. So that's another bonus by moving it. Yeah, absolutely. That, I, I think that's something that a lot of players probably can't wait to to get to, where the point that they actually get to play in front of the crowds again. I know yeah. as a spectator, it, it's it's very odd watching, even before a game starts and you hear kind of the national anthems and it's literally just the players and the coaches. It's it's a very odd experience when you're so used to hearing these big crowds for, for all these games. I, I guess in order to kind of preview this weekend's fixtures. I know the big story has been around the French team um, because there's been the COVID outbreak now. I know yesterday there was a there was a report that the next batch of tests came in that they were all negative. Um, do you think that it's wise for this France and Scotland game to go ahead this this weekend, um, considering that nine of the players did just test positive last week? I think I think they're doing the right thing. They're testing daily, aren't they? So yeah. I think by the weekend they will know whether or not they've got any more cases. And I think if if anybody now tests is positive because obviously they're training together and they're preparing like they're going to play, then I think you can make the decision that it's not the right thing to to for the game to go ahead. But I think at the moment, you know, they've got all the protocols in place. Um, I just I just curious whether that game does the game get forfeited or does it it does uh, i'm not i'm not sure it's that's one of the big questions that i've had because it's the one thing that's kind of annoyed me about the champions cup this year because yeah. you see some of these big teams because of covid having to forfeit and they lose 28 nil and it's one of those that i'd prefer just if they just waited two weeks and played the game later like there was a big gap in play where okay maybe they would have had to move maybe a premiership game or a pro 14 game and get the game actually played. So then when it comes to the knockout stages, you have your best teams that are still in the competition. I'm hoping, I'm, I'm not 100% sure on the Six Nations, I'm hoping that it's just one of those that'll get postponed and be played, especially when you see this French team that yeah. odds, uh, the odds on would be the main team to actually win a grand, the Grand Slam. And It's too much at stake, isn't it? Um, yeah, like Absolutely. Look, if it was the Ireland and Italy game where both teams have lost their two their two games, I think it's probably an easier decision to make for the Six Nations. But when you see a French team that would be vying to win the Grand Slam, I think it's very hard to make them have to forfeit a game. Yeah. It's it's a Sorry, I was gonna say. I also think Scotland were like, we want a shot. We want to play who everybody thinks is the best in in this tournament for sure. Yeah, because they were great because, look, it's an interesting one. We look at Wales winning the first two games and 
you even look at the Irish game and you look at even the stats and everything in relation to that. And Ireland dominated that game, made a couple of mistakes. And when you're down to 14, you can't do that and, and win. But then you saw Scotland, they were in control for the majority of that game and got down to 14 men and it, it completely changed. The biggest mistake that I think Scotland made was they let Wales stay in the game. And then once they got that that man advantage, they were able to take that advantage and, and score. So Scotland still have to be looking at this. Uh, they, they're still in with a chance of winning the competition. If they beat France, it kind of blows it wide open again. So I would say they would want, and especially after losing to Wales, the next game, you want to come out and you want to kind of lay down a market to say, this isn't the same old Scotland who'll, once we lose one game, we'll lose another yeah. one and be out of the competition. We want to, we've been England. We want to prove that we're, we're there to compete and to win. And you look at the teams that they would have left. Ireland haven't been playing too great the last couple of weeks. They, they probably fancy themselves in that game and then Italy as well. So if they can get over France, they have more than a good chance to actually win the competition. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the players will, you know, as players, you like we've had this a situation where we've had to, um, due to COVID protocols, Saracens uh, received the win in our leave and got given a five five points just like that. And you're like, as players, you're like, I, we don't we don't want the game to to be like that. Like I, we would much rather play the game, lose fairly, or lose or win well. Um, so I suspect that all the players as well as the staff will be like, look, we want to be playing in these games because ultimately, you know playing against the best teams is is what's going to keep pushing you further. Even if Scotland didn't win that game, they're still going to want to see where they're at against a team who is in complete peak form or get into peak form. They're still going to want to be playing against those sides. Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess we're not, look, we're not too sure if, if that game's going ahead yet. I suspect it probably will if the last couple of days they've been testing negative. It, it probably comes down to what happens on Thursday and Friday. Um, yeah. ho hopefully it happens because it's probably with the England and Wales game probably one of the games of the weekend um, in terms of that England and Wales game we've mentioned that Wales at times have looked good but again you look at the two games and you can probably argue that while they won both of them they could have easily lost both of them as well England have been and I, ha I was talking to someone last week on, on the podcast and it was a very not England like performance the last kind of two games that it's not something that especially the first game against Scotland it was something that you wouldn't have expected from England over the last kind of couple seasons how do you think that they fared this this season is it the fact that there's been some players that haven't had the game time in in the premiership or do you think that maybe did they maybe underestimate Scotland when they played against them and then look it was Italy and they were they were going to win the game or do you think some changes actually need to be made within that England squad well, I think I don't. I would imagine with the players that they have and the leadership that they have in the England team, there's no way that they would have gone in thinking, you know, we've got this over Scotland, and you know, sitting and you know expecting to win the game. You know, they did play poorly. They they missed so many opportunities, um, and, and maybe it does have a factor to the the amount of games that some players have not been able to to get under their belt. You know, we all know that you get better by playing. And training is one thing and trying to train at the intensity of an international test is another thing, which is very hard to replicate. And as much as coaches try and do it, you know, your, your mind is still not like it would be in a test 
in a test game and you see lots of great videos coming out from the England camp how they train and prepare and it's very serious and it's very hard and but it's still never going to match that intensity and that and even club intensity and club matches you know they are really important to get a confidence to get a feel of things to to make some errors to then find your way back into things um so yeah I think you know we haven't seen the best of them uh we've seen you know some good elements some good individuals stand up um but we're yet to see that kind of team coming together and I think on Wales they they're just ruthless in the end and they find a way to win and sometimes that's what test rugby is all about it's you know it's not always glamorous and it's sometimes you're fighting out those fine margins and you happen to get over that last little inch and, and you win the game and but what that does do it fuels you it gives you energy that you can close tight games out where a you haven't played very well but yet you still manage to get the win that's huge um and to add to that, they've got quite a few players coming back into, into training now this week, which gives them more opportunity for selection of some of their big game players. And so I think England will be, you know, pretty hot on their tails about this game and thinking, you know, that they're going to have to perform at their best. Yeah, we've seen a lot. We saw in the previous game that Liam Williams came back. We've seen Reece Samet, who was really good. And we're going to probably see the likes of George North and kind of come back into it as well so it'll be a really interesting one and it's it's something that you mentioned that they just know how to win and it's it's something that's really important at international level one of the one of the questions that i had just to kind of finish off on because it kind of goes towards the irish and the italian game is you mentioned the kind of different levels from training to club rugby to international play when a coach internationally is kind of thinking of when to bring through kind of a younger player do, is it where they need to have that a long amount of experience at both club level in order to be able to take the risk to bring them in? Or when do you think it's the right time to kind of introduce young players into the an international setup? Because I know it's been a big it's been a big talking point here in Ireland is what they should do with the likes of I know there was a report that Sexton pretty much said that he probably won't be there for the next World Cup is when do you make that decision to bring in the next kind of young player that you expect to take over do you give it time or do you bring them into the fold and let them experience with the other players on the international level you know i like personally i was talking about this the other day about um the opportunities if you're able to bring in younger players as early as possible into the environment with zero pressure on them you know, come and have a look around, see how things operate, you know, maybe have a run out this afternoon, you know, allow them to just get exposure to all of that. Because we all know if you're feeling good, you're training well, you're at your best, you're going to get the best out of that player. If you suddenly go right now, you're in this environment and you're going to be starting now because number one's out, then, you know, that's so much pressure. And like we've seen players in the women's game where they've been thrown in the deep end literally out of nowhere thrown into the deep end and they completely crumble and then all of a sudden coaches are well they're not up for it yeah. and then you don't see those players again and I think there's there's such a good art in bringing in and I think you know Eddie's done it well with the apprenticeships and with the shadow squad bringing those young players in to experience it see what it's like make mistakes learn from people around you you know just being in and around that environment because if I think about when I first got selected I was 19 years old and I went to a rugby world cup and I was straight in and it's like, well, not expecting to be picked, was picked for the first game, starting and was like, 
you know, at the time loving it, absorbing it, but how could I, how could that have been a, a more of a seamless experience? Yeah. You know, a small introduction. So I think in order to get the best out of your players and, and someone like Marcus Smith, who plays at Harlequins is a brilliant example. When he's playing with confidence and he's comfortable in his environment, you see, you get the best out of him. So the more, if you've got young players like that, you don't want them to come in in, in a fear state because then you won't see the best in them what you've seen when they're not in that state. So I think the earlier you can bring someone in, and even if it's, you know, a mentorship where Johnny's working with that player, you know, or just having a conversation with them every couple of months or something, just to start to to bridge those gaps is really important, I think, for, for developing and bringing those young players in. Yeah, I think they did it really well the first time around with, Johnny when you had Ronan O'Gara in there and it kind of took his time coming through I know when there was big competitions that Johnny would go over with Ireland and some of the friendly games I, I remember kind of one of his first international games was against Japan and it was a very kind of get him into the fold and slowly bring him along I guess the the problem now that people are having is that people want change so quick when things don't work and yeah. like you said the last thing that you need is just kind of throwing it a young mm. kid in that's not ready for international play when they might be playing really well for their club but like we said before international rugby is on a completely different level that you won't be prepared for until you actually play yeah. in one of the games but uh yeah it's it's been great having you today again is there anywhere that people can find your work where they can kind of whether it's to follow you on on twitter or your website Yes, we've got the Girls Rugby Club. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Girls Rugby Club. And then we've got a website, girlsrugbyclub.com. Um, yeah, if you're interested, want to know more about it, get in touch. Uh, we're, we're always on the lookout for, you know, coaches. Hopefully come and develop some stuff over in Ireland as well, talking to a few people there. Um, but no, it's been a real pleasure to be on today. So thanks for having me. Um, and I look forward to, to hearing it when it comes out. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Rachel.